This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Dr. Craig Richards, professor of biopharmaceutical sciences at Shenandoah University in Virginia and founder of the online learning center ASMR University is back to give us a deep dive in the world of ASMR, how it can help you and maybe quiet your brain from all the busy. This time we look at how people use calm voices to find that safe place and maybe fall asleep to quiet the brain. Hank the Hacker tells us how hackers are taking advantage of the conflict in Gaza to target charities and other civilians try to shut down their websites. And are you okay with drones? How about police chases? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. A few weeks ago here on the Shift, we had a conversation about ASMR. And I feel like in that conversation, we kind of got to A and maybe a little bit of the S. Pretty sure we didn't even get to the M or the R. I'm joking, of course, because that's not how it works. But uh, in in the uh, in the theory of how deep we can go in the conversation, I wanted to bring back our guest. It's Dr. Craig Richard, university professor, ASMR researcher, and host of the podcast Calm History. Um, Craig, welcome back. I appreciate you coming. Oh, happy to be back, and always happy to talk about ASMR. Like you, truly, you 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 know you you have to believe in what you do. There has to be a core, like for all of us, if you really want to live it, you've got to believe in it. And for you, that's real. Like Mm -hmm. for you, ASMR and all of your work around it, I mean, this is a core of piece of you. Yeah. And I don't think if I had realized I experienced it, I might not have started to study it because I had that same response that most people have, which is this sounds a little kooky, a little weird. And maybe it's not even real. And that was my first reaction. And then yeah. when I realized I experienced it, I started out my research as a personal believer that I know it helps me. I know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some friends who do some coaching work and just sort of life coaching and all those bits and pieces. And they will say that. They will say, okay, now I'm going to ask you to set aside the woo-woo for a minute right? And just stay with me. We can talk about the woo-woo later, but I want you to don't let our, our human habits of trying to explain and figure things out. And, and, uh, you know, is this good? Is this bad? Does this work? Is this fake? Is this real? Am I being hypnotized? Don't don't let that step in the way. I want you to have a wholehearted experience. And if anything comes up to you about the woo-woo, we'll talk about it after. Mm -hmm. Is that probably a good way to, when someone says, Hey, I've got this ASMR video that I think you're really going to like, it's going to help you calm down or quiet your mind or, or whatever. Is that maybe a good way to set aside for some people, you know, acknowledge the fact that this might be new to you um, and, and just and get a blank canvas to look at? Yeah. I'd lean right on the benefit, which is if you like this video, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter who's in it and what they're doing. Are you getting a benefit from it? And if the person says, yeah, it's, helping me to de-stress and it's helping me to fall asleep and I don't understand why and my friends don't like it, but I really enjoy it. To me, that's the Mm -hmm. key. What are you getting as a healthy benefit from it? How does it work for you? Is that, I mean, there's gotta be stigma, you know, roadblocking so many people from trying things like this, right? Um, And that that must be hard to cut through a little bit. I think I'm hearing stigma for the first time in all the times we've chatted here. Yeah, it it can happen for some individuals. And if you just picture the situation and some of your listeners may have been in this situation, they might be sitting in their office and are at home and they've had a stressful day. So they turn on an ASMR video and they're enjoying it. They're feeling relaxed, but then someone else walks in the room while they're watching it. And all, all of a sudden they're acutely aware that what they're watching is someone speaking very intimately to them in this soft, Mm -hmm. gentle voice. And of all of a sudden, you do feel a little bit awkward that someone else has stepped into this, even though it's a digital recorded moment, it's still, there's a level Mm -hmm. of intimacy to it. And so people do feel sometimes a little bit embarrassed by that, but Mm -hmm. not when they're experiencing it by themselves, but just if someone else comes along and they don't understand what's happening. Yeah, kind of the sanctum 
realm, right? Someone steps into your sanctuary and you're like, whoa, welcome to my bubble. I yeah. feel weird now. Um, so we've talked about, okay, so here, for those who don't know what we're talking about, let's reset this now. This is a good opportunity to do that. ASMR, the way that I've described it to people, and I would like you to contribute or completely reset what I'm saying, Craig, because I, I feel like this is a good opportunity for me to share my interpretation of it. And I'm going to be completely honest, I don't have in front of me any notes that say what is ASMR, because I wanted to ask these questions authentically. I don't remember what the words are for the acronym. And I way I describe it to people is this, have you ever tried to meditate? And they're like, Oh, yeah, I try to but my brain gets too busy, it doesn't work for me. I say, Okay, well, the difference between ASMR and say meditation or vision work or whatever it is that you do is when you're doing meditation vision work, you're you're self imposing this this mental place for yourself, it takes discipline, it takes work, it takes practice, it takes sometimes years to master. ASMR is going to allow you to have someone else, whether it's a video or a spoken word thing, give you that place, and they allow you to they're giving you the information, it removes this, this piece of I'm doing it wrong. You just get to consume it and be with it and be present to it and follow it. So it's a, it, it allows you to experience someone else's work. And that can be take a lot of the burden off. The destination is fundamentally the same place. It feels good. It resets. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It can give you tingly winglies all over. It can um, create a connection with your body and yourself in a new way. One's kind of inward. One one comes in. One goes out. I guess is kind of the way that I describe mm -hmm. ASMR. So can you can you elaborate on that and and explain what is the acronym? Well, first, Shane, I'll say you nailed it. <laughs> I love your description. The acronym stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. But your description was so key because here's the key difference, which is what you said, between mindfulness, meditation, and ASMR. With mindfulness and meditation, you're getting yourself into a relaxation state, which may say, take some initial training and attempts to do. With ASMR, someone else is getting you into that relaxation state. And so an example would be, you just turn on an ASMR video and it's their gaze, it's their relaxed personality, it's their kindness, it's their soft voice. You're tuning into that instead of tuning into yourself. And that puts you in a relaxed state. And for me, that works so much better for me than meditation because I can't get out of my own mind, which probably just mm -hmm. means I need better training in meditation and mindfulness. <laughs> but I can't escape out of it. But if suddenly someone is giving me focused, positive, personal attention, it my, my brain then fixates on that. And that's what gets me into the relaxed state. So your description mm -hmm. was wonderful. Well, I think in, one's not necessarily better than the other. I think that's important to include as well. I mean, yeah, as a person who does meditate and do, does vision work all the time, the notion that I can sit down and let someone else, and I say someone else, all the different forms that you can get ASMR, sort of guide me for the day and just listen, that to me is a whole new world of learning and experience that's really cool. I, that, I think that both could dance in your life quite nicely if you're willing to give it a go. But we've had, Craig, ASMR has been around forever. We just didn't realize what it was. I mean, remember the old audio tapes you used to buy of the sound of the ocean, right? Or you used to have a video of a fish tank or, you know, the, in different forms through the course of time, we've had these things in our lives for a long time. It's only now that it's really starting to get researched into a bit of a structure where we can um, learn specifics about the benefits and who it does benefit. Yeah. Nature sounds are definitely relaxing and they're helpful to a lot of people. But those type of sounds, I separate from ASMR sounds. So ASMR sounds are always going to involve sounds created by another human to get you into that relaxed state. And I think it has a stronger effect on the brain than the sounds of nature. So, but where you're completely correct is it's always existed. It's always out there. There's actually, as long as there's been recordings, there's been some content. And so a classic example of content that's been sitting out there, that's been giving people ASMR for a long time, and they may not have realized it, is the TV show, Bob Ross's Joy of Painting. Yeah, And right? that was the first connection I made when yeah. someone, I heard someone explain that, yeah, well, if you watch Bob Ross, 
and you feel deeply relaxed by his voice and the way he acts and his personality and the, the way he taps his brush on the painting, then you're probably experiencing ASMR. Mm-hmm. And that that was the connection I made to content that's always been out there, that's always relaxed me, but I didn't know the name for that type of relaxation. I think what it's land for me, Craig, is uh, since our previous conversation where I learned about this for the first time properly, was uh, we've all done it, we've all experienced it, and I'm curious to see if you think that this is an example of it, is bedtime stories. Mm-hmm. As kids, we as parents, we gave them, and as kids, we listened to them and in some fashion or form. And it, it came to me because Melanie loves it. I'll read poems before bed, mm-hmm. and she gets mellow and falls, falls asleep. Lots of times I don't get to finish the poem, right? And... So for me, I was like, oh, wait a second. That's kind of what's happening here. You know, in its own form, bedtime stories are really allowing you to be with the voice and be with it all. And then kids fade away or, or adults fade away and, and off we go into, into sleepy time. Now, it's, it's, it might not be ASMR specifically, but very ASMR adjacent, I would say is fair. No, you've actually described the exact core context for all ASMR. And it's a personal interaction with a kind or caring person. And that's exactly what, when you read a bedtime story, you're giving one-on-one personal interaction to someone. Now, if you're doing it in a very caring way and a soft voice, then those are the aspects of that context that heighten the ASMR. So you could obviously have a personal act interaction with someone where you just yell at them. <laughs> so it's not about the personal interaction. It's about yeah. the kindness that is tucked inside that personal interaction that somehow lights up the other person's brain in such a way that they're calm because they feel safe. So when parents read children bedtime stories, that is the core scenario for an ASMR experience. Hmm. So, okay. Uh, Who benefits from this? I would like to ask that question. And is this taking us back to, I mean, this is very, this is not even a word. It's very woomy in that, um, you know, you're in your mother's womb, things are mellow, you're cared for, you're warm, you're a baby, you're swaddled up, you're warm. Like this is some core brain psychology stuff that I see that's happening there. And what a beautiful, safe place to be able to actively go to when you feel like you want it or need it. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So who benefits it? Is that wild or not? Please feel address that. But uh, is that who benefits specifically? Because we didn't get to that part last time we chatted. Is someone sitting there going, "Okay, okay, you guys in your woo woo videos? What? Um, I mean, we've chatted about it here, and I hope it's okay. You know, Jono does it. Ryan watches ASMR. They everyone here on the team, basically, but me, knew all about it. <laughs> I was the only one in the dark. So who benefits from this? Well, going back to what you're saying about the womb, I was listening very carefully. And I was waiting for the moment you were going to say the key word, and then you finally said it, safe. Hmm. It's whether we're in the womb, as soon as we come out of the womb, we don't feel safe. It can be the coldness of, it can be the hunger feeling, whatever it is. We don't have that feeling of comfort anymore. Inherent then to the second part of the question is, who can benefit? Is anyone who feels stressed, unsafe? uncomfortable because ASMR gets you into this state of feeling comfortable, safe, and relaxed. And those words go together. So imagine you're walking through the woods and you bump into a strange person. Your brain wants to know right away, is this person a threat or are they not a threat? And you're going to look for basic patterns. Is the person shouting and running towards you and swinging their hands around wildly? And maybe they have a sharp object in their hand. doesn't matter how old you are. You know that's a threatening situation and you're going to feel unsafe and you're going to turn around and run away, or at least you should. But what if the person is moving very slowly, maintaining positive eye contact with you? Maybe they have something in their hand, but they're looking at it intently. And they're really not focused on you initially. But when you get closer, there's something about the way they're acting that makes them makes you feel welcome to where they're at. In other words, they're making you feel safe. They're not threatening you anymore. They're now probably talking in a very soft tone. 
They're moving deliberately. And your brain is now registering this. This is a safe person. And the feeling that we get when we're safe is calmness. And the reason we feel calm and relaxed when we're safe is now our brain is telling us, don't run away. You're in the presence of someone who could benefit you, whether they have resources, they could teach you a skill, or there's some kind of comfort they could provide for you. So if you're feeling stressed, if you your brain is so hyperactive you can't fall asleep, ASMR just makes you feel safe, comfortable, and relaxed. Because whatever that voice is, whatever that person is doing, your brain is saying, hey, this person is not only safe, but they're caring for me. I shouldn't run away. I should just relax. Uh, I hear this differently second time, which is great. The, the There are some other things there that I think are really telling. I mean, if you can find your safe place, and I think about our personal relationships, we often will say, in our personal relationships every day, I, you know, I wish we were more connected, my partner and I, my spouse and I, I wish we could share more or in all those bits and pieces. So to me, what you're saying about the safe place, that's everybody always right a, a, on so many layers of an onion, right? Like once you peel away one layer of safety, you're like, oh, here's a whole new layer of what's safe and what's not safe. So it seems to be a life practice. And you spoke earlier of if you were watching an ASMR video, you're kind of zoning into it, you're getting the feeling and then someone else walks in the room, embarrassment kicks in mm -hmm. in some, for some people. And that's interesting because not only can it help you find a safe place, it is possible ASMR could help you find not safe places and elements of your personal life and your relationship that you, to me, it's, it's telling in that cognitively, you can almost say, oh, I, I don't feel safe at work actually. Now that I know what safe feels like, mm -hmm. When these people walk in the room, when, you know, the weird sales guy walks in the room, I don't feel safe. And I mean, so that creates this whole new benchmark of how you want to live your life created and how it starts to work for you. And then you, you get to decide, do I want to deal with that or work with that or, or, or how do I get there? And you can go through all that too. So that to me seems incredibly telling and what a gift to be able to give somebody mm -hmm. to let them know, by the way, you're welcome in my safe place. You're welcome in my sanctuary. And I don't want to get weird about it, but in Happy Gilmore, go to your happy place. That's what he talked about in Happy Gilmore. And his happy place was really weird, but it was his and he was happy. And, um, and it was a happy place until someone negative showed up. What a gift to be able to say to somebody, by the way, you, you're welcome in my safe place. Shane, you've, you've made a really good connection that a, a lot of people don't make. And it's something that's one of the most important things about ASMR but I don't rarely get to mention it because people can't make the connection that you're making right now. And here's the way I kind of summarize what you said. There's a lot of people who, when they grew up, they didn't have someone who cared for them well. It might've been a lot of mistreatment by parents, by siblings, by early relationships. They really don't know what a healthy relationship is. And as a result, it gets them in the cycle of unhealthy relationships because they really don't know what it feels like to be safe in the presence of someone who supposedly loves you. You can't create a real relationship with someone in an ASMR video. But what you can begin to question is, when you're seeing the way this person in this ASMR video is talking to you, the way they're pretending to treat you with love and care and whatever words come to mind of a healthy relationship, for I think a lot of people who watch some of these videos, it makes them realize this is what I want in my life that I don't have. They know they're not going to get it out of a recorded video, but it, it really kind of just gives them an epiphany of I'm tired of being mistreated by parents, friends, relationships, partners. I want this, this thing that's being represented in this video, this person who's just gazing in the camera saying nice things to me and trying to help me and be kind to me. And I think ASMR videos, for some people, serve that deep of a purpose. What we mostly hear about, how it just helps people to deal with the stress of their day or helps them to fall asleep. But I think there's this other helpful aspect to it that I, I don't hear so much about but I think it's out there. 
I, I would think that that's so incredibly integral uh, from the outside. And I'm just learning is that, I mean, hey, if it works for you and takes stress off your day, perfect. That's amazing. It's awesome. And uh, take it as seriously as your love of playing basketball or going for a walk with the dog. Like take it that seriously if it helps you. Um, the interesting part to me is in vision work, that's vision work, essentially reverse engineered vision work, mm -hmm. right? Is that you're getting the safe place first and then trying to create, recreate the same place. And I've been told that by everybody from psychologists to clairvoyants to like people who are uh, coaches and they will say that, well, think of your, my place was Christmas. There was, there's this vision I had, well, where do you feel safe? Where do you feel like it? And, um, I was Christmas and it was warm yeah. and it was people around, there was laughing and we were making dinner. And I was with this person that uh, I didn't know who it was that, but that's what love felt like. Yeah. And so then I was just simply told that's the feeling, find that feeling. Mm -hmm. Everything you do in your life is to find that feeling then. And that's what you're talking about. This is an opportunity to change the topic off of the history of relationships, to change the topic off of interpersonal relationships and just go, this is just the feeling, no right. storyline, just the feeling. Mm -hmm. And what a nugget of beauty that could be when you find that feeling and then you're like, I want to feel this always. Yeah. And is that possible or not? Probably debatable. Time will tell, I suppose. But if you could live into that feeling and then how... Think about how that could rewrite how you define a relationship. Mm -hmm. How it, maybe it's not Christmas, maybe it's a mountain walk. I don't know, but whatever it is for you, if you could seek out that feeling, bah, like yeah. that's that is life altering. That is generationally altering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's the example you gave of Christmas is great because once you've had that example in your life of a moment that you feel safe and happy, then you know what to look for. For some people, if they've never had a healthy relationship, they don't know what to look for. They don't know what that feeling is. But then here's this ASMR video that might be able to simulate that for them enough so that they realize, I've had a lot of unhealthy relationships. This is what I'm missing mm -hmm. out on. All right, now I know what to look for. You get the tinglys. You talked about yeah. the tinglys. Yeah. You, you get the tinglys? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that since we've chatted to people who they like inside the team here talking about getting the tinglys. Can you imagine, Craig, what it would be like? Now you've been able to get the, the you know, you watch your ASMR video. The tinglys are sort of the scalp feeling that you get in your body. Mm -hmm. To me, I think uh, I haven't had it yet that I've discovered. But for me, that stuff usually happens in the back of my neck. Um, and yet, imagine this. Okay. You're a skeptic. <laughs> you're pess pessimist. You know, you're dating this person and you're like, ah, well, I can't find love, but that'll do whatever. Someone walks up to you and maybe you're in the kitchen and you're cooking and they walk up behind you and they either touch you gently or they say something kind to you or whatever. And in that moment, you get the tinglys, mm -hmm. just like you get when you're in your safe space. What an amazing message that could be for your experience of yourself to say, oh, now I know I've been given the clarity, the gift of the clarity of what the safe space is. And now I'm able to take that. And now it's just randomly occurred in life for me. Like that, if you want to talk about messages, you want to talk about um, listening to your experience of yourself. That's, whew, it's almost that's magic, man. It's almost the opposite of a pain signal, right? Like a pain mm. signal is someone has stepped on your foot. Your brain mm -hmm. yells at you. This is a bad thing undo it, you know, pull your foot away, yeah. push the person away. Yeah. You can think of a tingle in the way you just highlighted it as the opposite. A mm. tingle is when your, or the tingles is when your brain says, Hey, this person is kind. They're caring. Mm -hmm. Don't push them away. Pull them closer in terms of mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this goes, look, if it works for you and it helps you, you know, relax or whatever, or if you're listening to this show, again, I say it's not really a compliment, Craig, because we're supposed to have people listen. But if they fall asleep because you turn us on in the background and, and that helps, then what a gift that is to be included in that. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a different kind of compliment for a guy like me who's supposed to keep you listening. But um, I will take that compliment because that's about as human as it gets. And, and, and Or if it graduates into this whole life journey thing, um, that's beautiful as well. Where does it land for you? How do you are able to incorporate it into your, aside from your doctor researcher life, 
Um, how do you incorporate it in your day to day? Is there anything that maybe you can share with us that is just a day to day example that still might surprise you from time to time? My brain is filled with overactive squirrels and they will not let me fall asleep at night. They just running around. It's my thoughts from the day. It's the thoughts of tomorrow. It's the things I said, it's the things I have to do. And I just lie there. And so for me, I need to put on a podcast and listen to someone's calm voice. And Mm -hmm. Shane, as you were highlighting, like for some of your listeners, this is that podcast for them. Mm -hmm. It, it has to be engaging enough to engage the brain because you're switching tracks. You Mm -hmm. have to disengage the brain from your own stressful thoughts about your day and your to-do list and switch it over to the content that's inside whatever podcast or audio or radio show that you're listening to. And so for me, I need that every night. And and it's what inspired me to create my own podcast. It's called Calm History. Because Mm -hmm. I realized what I was doing was I was trying to find these history podcasts where the hosts had a calm voice. And they talked about the history in a calm way. But I couldn't find many. So I went and I created my own and I just called it Calm History. That's great. I love it. Well, we'll link that for everybody if they want to give it a go. Um, So it can be your second favorite podcast, just saying. (laughs) Still got to be the radio guy a little bit. Uh, Look, if this helps you, the whole point of this show to me is to hopefully leave you a little touched and inspired and a little better off than when we got here the night before. And so if that's, if this is the ticket that gets you there, then that's an integrity for me. And I love this and uh, link everybody up again. I feel like we're not even scratching the surface of specifics, Craig, um, and maybe a, a conversation in a little bit here again about getting into some of the specific things that we see in ASMR videos, the kinds of things that uh, could be for you, it was history, but delivery of history for other people. It can be some of the sounds that you've shared, paper rustling, all the bits and pieces that people do um, to, to get us there. So I, I think that's probably next on our, on our agenda. If you'll, if you'll continue the conversation. Yes. Like I said, I love talking about ASMR. And, uh, and, and how beautiful is going back to old painting TV shows and cool haircuts, huh? We're back in the day. <laughs> Bob Ross. I love it. He's a legend. He is a legend. Thanks for being here, Craig. Oh, thank you. This is The Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me. Hank the Hacker is here, Hank Fordham. Don't tell anybody that uh, knew your dad that I was the one who edited his song and cut it all up, by the way. <laughs> That's not, that was my fault. Um, I love it. Yeah, right? This, this is, Hank, that was his dad's song. Um, Hank, uh, welcome back here to The Shift after a couple of weeks off. You come back at a time where things are a little uh, bananas in the world of hacking. Uh, the lens tonight we're going to go into um, in a moment is the cyber security awareness month which is happening in the background in the news center in calgary which is really kind of cool what it's offering for training we'll get to that in a second though but first we did just come off speaking about all things going on internationally hank and i thought maybe it would be a great opportunity to explain how things are changing in what we see and we need to also be careful because of things like hacking in what we get for messages now just to be clear in this conversation We are not um, saying one side is doing more than the other or this side or that side. It is just a pragmatic conversation about things that are happening in the world of hacking. I want to make that that clear, okay, and that we're just talking about specifics this way, the specifics that way, because we're not getting into the details of what's going on in and around Israel and Ukraine, um, but we are talking about the way that influence is happening so we don't have a chance to declare any opinions here. It's just the, the facts. So... Hank, we've seen a lot. I know that in my feeds, I have received, uh, I'm not even on TikTok, but I'm getting absolutely hammered with propaganda-based information that's trying to favor this side or that side and all of the conflicts to a level that I've never seen before. That can be hacking as um, hackers can have robots that publish content 
move content, forward content, promote content, all those different things. So that can be um, someone creating a system that promotes things in a way that more people see it. And then not to mention, there are activists out there that want to change people's opinion and can be changing information that, that we get in front of, creating fake information and putting all that stuff out there, not to mention something as simple as hacking a website and changing the info on it. We are seeing all of these things go on, especially around the conversation in Israel now, yeah? Absolutely. And, you know, with, with in, in the hacking world, it's it. you're right, it's important to realize that it doesn't, there's no side in particular, but um, it, it, these things are not new. It happens every time there's, you know, when there's an election, we see hackers running these bots, these mass bot accounts just to go and spread whatever kind of information they want on social media. Um, and you also see these lower level cyber attacks like de denial of service attacks uh, are becoming kind of a major feature of these conflicts. And and right now between uh, Israel and Hamas, but th the attacks could actually ramp up in intensity like we've seen uh, before with the invasion of Ukraine. So sometimes these low complexity attacks like like a denial of service, they can actually carry out a significant impact where uh, something like humanitarian efforts and donation services could actually be taken offline or or otherwise impacted. Um, mm -hmm. And, and there, obviously right now there's a lot of DDoS attacks happening right now focused on services that people are kind of looking for, like rescue services and well, just imagine that for a second. You have an organization that is trying to bring aid to the people that are hurt, and there are activists out there that are actively uh, trying to break down the website or the communications links and all the things of these people that are trying to bring aid, right? Like, it, it's the it's the age-old conversation in war about when people are hurt, you know, and the medics are there. You're not supposed to shoot at the medics, right? That's one of those war crimes things. But at the same time, this is what's happening now digitally, and the rules are are not as clear because it's, this is new. And what's happening is you have organizations that aren't political or may just be community-based that are trying to fundraise and, and bring... It could be as simple as get water into a community that doesn't have water, and that people are trying to break down that organization so they stop getting water in to help the people. And these things are going on digitally all the time, uh, behind it. Are we seeing a lot of activity on it? Is it getting more complicated over time? Because my understanding from you, Hank, is that in the beginning, it's sort of just simple activism based people trying to prove a point or show that they support this side or that side. And at the same time, you're starting to see um, that grow and change now. Oh, man, what an excellent point. So um, first off, I'll, I'll start with, uh, you know, while while the cyber attacks have been kind of somewhat less critical so far, some of these hackers are a heck of a lot better and a heck of a, a heck of a lot nastier um, than you might think. And I'm looking at, or I'm thinking about your point about uh, the war crime. Like it, you can't shoot the medic. And and in the hacker world, there actually is kind of a Geneva Convention, if you will, where hospitals are off limits. But as these reactionary hackers get involved in these groups of tele, uh, these telegram groups and what have you get created, uh, the, the hackers become less and less willing to follow these these kind of unwritten rules. And I'll, I'll make a quick comparison again, although I, I hate to make comparisons, but in in the first days of the invasion in Ukraine, we saw things like satellite systems getting taken down as tanks crossed the border and these are coordinated attacks so this so like is the where... satellite supports the tanks they cross the border uh, the satellites get hacked and then they get offline and it takes them time to get back on allows them to either hide the tanks or not protect the tanks or whatever in the meantime well and imaging satellites and stuff right. like that and so anything that like this happened while the tanks were crossing so these were obviously coordinated attacks where you know, these, these hackers knew that this was happening. It was government-backed. and But a lot of what we see from this conflict so far is kind of the result of hacking on Telegram and around the world where hackers or hacktivists, if you will, are kind of reacting to the news 
and not necessarily government backed just yet. Mm -hmm. Are you able to, or is there conversation that goes on in the background with white hat hackers, you know, the good guys that um, calls out other places in the world that are getting involved in this. So, you know, we did see with Ukraine and Russia, there was other countries that got involved in that, at least as a source of hacking. And then in, in around Israel and the Hamas, are you seeing that, you know, uh, hackers from Iran are getting involved or does anybody call that stuff out online? Absolutely. And like, so you get the guys that will kind of blow the whistle. And I immediately, every time I think of this, I think of the Conti ransomware group. They got hacked a couple years ago and all of the security professionals who kind of got that data when it got put online and they went through it, um, they blew the whistle on the fact that these Russian ransomware groups were relying on some North American talent. They were relying on hackers from uh, for, well, from Canada and the U.S. and, and different countries. And uh, so while that happens, you even have the guys who just in the background, while there's the bad guys going and they're doing their thing, there's the white hat just patching stuff. So you don't hear that on the news, but it it's happened so much. And again, I'm going to mention the invasion in Ukraine where you get the white hats that will, yes, they'll go and they'll expose different parties and they'll rush ahead and patch, like, you know, they'll pick their side, if you will, and then they'll rush ahead and patch things. Or some hackers will even go ahead and patch things on both sides just because... Um, By they, patch things, you mean like if there's a known vulnerability. Uh, it's, it's almost like it's almost like this. If if someone knows that your house, like someone's been stalking your house to steal your TV, it's almost like hackers go there first. They break in, then they fix all the locks for you and fix all your security cameras, and then they leave, and they fix it for you before the bad guys can actually break in and try to steal your TV. Is that fundamental? Is that too simple? Maybe. No, that's exactly it. And and that happens a lot too in these things. You just it just doesn't get posted on the news or it's usually no no one really knows that it happened. But yeah, that you know, you get the good guys and the bad guys just kind of going wild and it it just gets really ugly when these groups have enough time to proliferate and when government backed groups get involved. Well, it's an incredibly difficult conversation, and the activity is certainly going up. We will continue to watch that. Hank the Hacker is here. It is Cybersecurity Month, and trying to raise the awareness around cybersecurity. It's not easy to do that, Hank, because cybersecurity is a notion of most of us, is like trying to have somebody understand what an undercover cop does, right? Like, they don't, nobody really knows. We just know that they're there. So, but when we talk about someone stole my car, well, then that's different. We get that part. So how is it that this world is trying to take cybersecurity as a career, as an awareness? And, and what's, what are you seeing there that's good news that's bringing it to people's minds? Boy, what a, what a great, uh, great question. And so I, I used to have, I've had a lot of experience working uh, around, in and around with law enforcement in, in cybersecurity. And so I've seen the kind of um, lack in ability to respond to certain uh, certain incidents. So, you know, if you get hacked and, and you call in, they don't generally know what to do. But that's kind of changing now because we have law enforcement hosting these cyber events. And, um, of course, we've had, you know, 19 ransomware attacks so far in Calgary alone this year. Um, but we have the cyber assessment training and experimentation or the, the new Kate Center at the University of Calgary. And uh, that's kind of got, it's got a cyber range and law enforcement is married in there and it helps IT and everyone else who's interested keep up with cons the constant changing landscape of cybersecurity. And I think it's no better time than now during cybersecurity month where uh, it's, you know, more important than ever to try and, you know, if if we could make it where 
just like we celebrate Christmas, we go into October every year and we celebrate cyber hygiene. Change your passwords and cyber hygiene. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. Change your passwords, you know, wipe that old computer that's getting a little bit slower and just start your your cyber new year um every October with kind of a fresh start and a little bit in the advantage, if you will. Well, that's a good point. Much like the uh, police, or excuse me, the firefighters go even go around and do campaigns knocking on doors saying, don't forget to change the batteries in your smoke detector. This would be um, uh, something very similar to that one. I wanted to try to create, as I like to do, an example that allows people to understand the difference between IT people and cybersecurity people. And I've come to it this way. If a cybersecurity person is the person that knows the inside of the lock, all of the bits, all the little clicky bits, all the parts that move inside a lock. The IT professional knows how to install a door. And that is the distinct difference between the two. You can't expect the carpenter who installs the door to know how the lock works. And cybersecurity people are focus on all of the bits and pieces. I use the locksmith example to do that. You can't have a carpenter do the job of a locksmith. Probably can't have the job of a locksmith do the job of a carpenter for that matter. But that's an important distinction, isn't it, between IT and cybersecurity? Absolutely. And I'm kind of giggling while you're talking because I mean the if I could if I got like 10 cents for the number of times that I've sat in a meeting where you know the IT team was actually really really hesitant to go through with a pen test uh, or pen, like a hacking test. engagement yeah. where, you know, they'll have our company or us go in and we'll, we'll hack them, show them how it was done and how to fix it. So no, no other hackers can go in, which is, is something I do now at X10. And it, it, it is important, especially for IT to understand that they're very good at what they do. IT's job is to build something, to build a machine a well-oiled machine and make it run smoothly and mm -hmm. reliably. And they're not, it, it, there's so many things that they have to worry about to have to worry about cybersecurity on top of that is, is a significant undertaking. And so it, it's, it's important to be able to marry, you know, a cybersecurity team with your IT team, because then you truly have a team that understands not only how something works and how it, it should be fixed, but a team that understands how to break it. Uh, so in other words, how to how to exploit it and hack it and get in and, and then teach the IT team how to fix that so it can't happen again. We don't understand this generally, Hank. I, I know that in Europe, this has been a conversation for years now. Canada is incredibly slow to the punch on this. Uh, and we, we are seeing the consequences of that. Uh, it would explain that a little bit of how in Europe, these conversations for the most part, you know, four or five years ago is when this started elsewhere in the world. And I think that if I understand this correctly, you see that from places where hacks are happening and um, cybersecurity in general is taken, like you said, about having its own department distinct from IT and all of that. And I think so many business owners and, and employees of businesses, they're like, hey, by the way, you've got that, your nephew knows how to plug in a monitor, right? Okay, he can be the new head of IT plan that Canada sort of has, you know? I feel like Canada, we still have we still have our, our friend's nephew building our website. I feel like that's where Canada is compared to the rest of the world. You know, we are, uh, that you couldn't be more right. We are absolutely still catching up. And a really good example would be, I, I just, I think when you first started speaking, I immediately think of legislation. When you look at, you know, we we just recently passed Bill C-26, I think it was. And this is a bill in Canada that's kind of aimed at respecting cybersecurity. But this is something that's existed in the USA and in Europe for a long time now. And even though it's just being implemented now in Canada, it's not being implemented the same way. So it's still going to take some time for these things to be massaged. And, 
you know, by these things, I mean, how do we treat um, cybersecurity incidents? How, what kind of companies should, should have to report a cybersecurity incident and how should that be carried out? Um, and the laws, like what is the criminal code going to look like in respect to cybersecurity moving forward? It's, it's pretty obsolete right now when you look at the criminal code and, and you look at it with a cybersecurity mindset. Um, and these are kind these are things that have been implemented in, you know, European countries and, and in America for a long time now. So I think that Canada's definitely catching up, but as we develop things, and I'm so happy to see Calgary taking the lead on this, because uh, we have so many really great companies in cybersecurity, but um, as we see things like this cyber assessment training and experimentation center, uh, or the Kate Center coming up, it it shows that we're starting to understand that there's a challenge, and there's more training and awareness needed to fill this gap. The Kate Center is at the University of Calgary. The City of Calgary Cybersecurity Awareness Month uh, conversation is out there. And if it's not happening in your city, it may be. But if it's not happening in your city, then do make sure that you take that to your counselors and get the conversation started. It'd be amazing what you can kick down the hill when you kick the ball, because that's what happened elsewhere, and we've got to get caught up. Hank the Hacker, thank you very much for being here, brother. Great to see you. Welcome back. My pleasure, man. Happy to be here. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with... 877-399-9898. Some stories that might make you ponder. Share your comments. Share your questions. Are you okay with... Drones. Um, I think they're neat. Uh, I'm glad I don't... You know, I'm glad that they're not so popular that I hear them all the time. You know, like they're, I don't, I never see drones, you know, it, but it seems like it's got a pretty uh, diehard community of people who love them, but it never really became like a nuisance. It's not really something I'm super interested in, except for the drone that's shaped like the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars and mm -hmm. you can fly it around and that, I would, I would buy that. I thought I had one of those. That was cool. Yeah. Right. It's neat. Yeah little foamy one it was nice flight around the house the i had one it's a really big fancy one like 4k cameras and all the stuff it oh, was super fun really? to do i mean that was neat yep. it was expensive at the time i yeah. should have waited but you know then all the rules came in on how and where you could fly them and all that stuff everything changed which is probably good because a lot of stupid people did stupid things with drones that you know was dangerous to other people so that part like meh, i don't know i can tell you this though the camera angle is always important amazing when it's photos from a drone it's just a perspective we don't get to see and it's beautiful oh it's oh and it's it's been really cool how they've used drone footage uh in movies and tv like just that really stable slow overhead shot you see it a lot like the last of us it was used so much and it gave like the real scale of alberta showed it off there so it's been very useful in photography film and uh, it's much safer than getting up an helicopter and sticking a camera out the side of it. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. It's true. I did that once too. I had a uh, we did a, some air to air photo sessions between helicopters. <laughs> we had to we'd have seatbelts and buckle ups. We had to put on the photographer to do that. It was incredible. Uh, windows off, doors off the side of the helicopter, tipping sideways in the air. Like, yeah, Ooh. drones are way safer. <laughs> yep. Good call. Good call. Uh, drone delivery never really took off. <laughs> like pizzas, huh? Not bad, right? eh? And so now it seems like in Canada, some healthcare administer administrators are turning to drones to move supplies, more specifically get lab results faster. Part of a test, Halton Healthcare recently approved the use of drones to transport medical samples and supplies between two Ontario hospitals, a first in Canada. The drone delivery follows a two-way transportation link between Milton District Hospital and Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital. Halton Healthcare Senior Vice President Hillary Rodriguez says that without the limitation of traffic, drones are quicker and more reliable than other vehicles. That means a better outcome for patients. The sooner those vital results can be communicated back uh, to the bedside, the uh, 
quicker um, care can be delivered. The hospital network and drone company are working on getting Transport Canada's approval to fly beyond the visual line of sight. Doing so would mean drones could deliver medical supplies to more rural communities. Drone Delivery Canada CEO Steve Majerius says drones can bypass a lot of the challenges that make medical access in underserved communities difficult. The drones, obviously, given their nature, that they can fly over traffic, over areas where you can't traverse uh, with roads. Um, there's, I think the opportunities are endless. Majerius also says that when it comes down to drones soaring over your head, there's nothing to be afraid of. The hospital network's drones are equipped with parachutes for safety. In terms of any concerns about surveillance, Majerius says the drones are not built with any cameras and are used exclusively for delivery. Naomi Bargell, Global News. Okay, I, the cameras, I'm guessing what they're alluding at is privacy, so they don't take pictures of you. Mm -hmm. But you'd kind of hope it has a camera so they could see where they're driving. No? Hmm. Now, what kind of samples exactly are they carrying over top of us? Because... You know, I've spent yep. some time at hospitals, and I know this, is that every time they need to take a sample of something, it's usually not because it's nice fluid. So I think that's uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's a fantastic idea, and it makes a lot of sense. Like, it would, it would save so much time, and uh, yeah, especially, like, traffic in Ontario, particularly, is, is just awful so skipping that is probably for like sometimes maybe a matter of life and death mm -hmm. and like that part's cool at the same time like if i'm on that route between the two hospitals and i see a drone flying above me i'm gonna like put my shirt above my head just in case because yeah gravity right fall. yeah yeah no gravity please and yeah let's turn that off i think it's a really cool idea do you ever think we get to the point where we all have a little landing pad in our front yard where deliveries get dropped because mm. I mean it's not like a drone could come to your front door and then I mean it probably could but it doesn't seem safe because these kids are outside playing all of a sudden the drone comes and flies under your eaves and comes to the front door and you know rings your doorbell and drops off your package or whatever it is that you get it seems to me that you would need like a designated landing spot in your backyard or something or on your patio and then the drone would drop it there but do you think we ever get to that point where we all have a little helipad in our yard well, maybe, but the thing is, you know, Amazon, I remember maybe ugh, a couple of years ago, Amazon was really pushing the idea that they were going to have drones deliver your stuff to your house. Yeah, they've backed I off, remember though, seeing right? the ads, mm -hmm. there was the packaging, there was an entire South Park episode making fun of the idea. And it didn't really work because, I mean, it's incredibly complicated to probably get the like legal okay to do it. And so the fact that it hasn't happened already makes me kind of wonder if it's one of those like high tech things that we're not really in a rush to have. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I, I think it's definitely a possibility. But, you know, giving a test flight, if you will, of these like really specific scenarios where it makes a lot of sense to have drones do this to see how efficient it is, how many crashes happen is probably better than just letting Amazon flood our streets with thousands of drones. So I'm okay with that part of it. But you think about traffic, though, right? I mean, so airplanes fly really, really high. And so they, they can be loud, but for the most part, you don't really notice them. And then, but cars, we are very comfortable in probably tune out car traffic noise, always. But if there's drones flying over your head or above your houses, 20 or 30 feet above your house, I mean, and if they're doing deliveries... You know, you're getting your pizza, you're getting your Amazon order, you know, sending your urine sample back to the hospital, whatever that they're talking about here. They, like, that, that's a lot. To me, if you look at Skip the Dishes and all the cars that are driving around, all of the Amazon vans you see everywhere, that's got to be a lot of drones. Because those drones aren't going to go from, they're not going to fly back and forth one delivery at a time. Right? That's the thing. The van, they've got a hundred deliveries in there and they're just dropping them off in order. So that doesn't seem efficient to me at all. I don't know. Little army of drones taking off and flying yeah, overhead and it feel like it's a, hear that. it's a movie, bad movie storyline coming. Anyway, uh, there we go. They, they've got to change some regulations around, um, line of sight travel with drones and all these bits and pieces that they have, but it's cool. The new rules could be among the first around the world to do that. And if it means that it saves lives, that part's kind of cool. Very. Are yeah. you okay with... 
cross our fingers and hope this one is already. Um, police chases. Um, well, that depends. Am I the yeah. one chasing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting that like car chases and police chases have, are like kind of like you know we, people just tune in and watch them. You know, it's like the same shot of a helicopter chasing after a car mm. for like an hour. And then, you know, the, the news anchor will run out of things to say, so they just kind of ramble. And then, you know, the car will swerve off the road, and then the rest of you are like, oh, okay, well, that was a car chase. So they're way cooler in movies. I don't think they should be live broadcasted on the news. Uh, but even though I was not alive when the whole OJ thing happened, I even knew about the white Ford Bronco mm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. There's also a joke about it in Shrek 2, by the way. There's a white Ford Bronco joke in Shrek 2. Did not know that. Yep. The, uh, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, it's dangerous when you get seven different helicopters in a big city like Los Angeles flying yep. to get the footage of a, of a, um, of a police chase. I find that weird. But if, if it helps you get out of the way, if the police chase is coming towards you, then maybe that's pretty all right. They always end yep. the same way. Spike belt I'm telling you, just the way it goes. Mm-hmm. And um, but anyway, I, I guess I mean to catch the bad guy. I like that the most places have outlawed the police chase in particular. It's the helicopters that follow it now. Police in Colorado have arrested someone after a wild crime spree, though. Trespassing, trespassing. That was in fastest wrong, wasn't it? Trespassing, mm. um, traffic disruptions, uh, property destruction, and all of it done by a pig. Took a lot of puzzle pieces getting put together before we could finally solve the problem. Aurora officials had been getting calls about a culprit who was wreaking havoc all around the city. Through police department, through our own dispatch of a disturbance and some property getting torn up and some traffic issues. They'd been working to track him down for days. The first couple times we were unable to find um, what was causing the problems. That is until we finally found him and and got him corralled up. Took us about eight people to capture him, yes. Have you seen anything like this before? Not in the city of Aurora, no. Nope, we have not ever had anything quite this size in the city that created such a disturbance. It took about two weeks to finally capture Fred here, and he's been hanging out at the Aurora Animal Shelter for about a week now. So far, they haven't found his owner, but they're optimistic that they'll find him a new home. He's very sweet, very loving. Loves the attention. He's a big boar, and he was enjoying his holiday of running around the city. There is that possibility that he just got too big, um, and somebody just turned him out, um, not knowing what else to do. Fortunately, he wasn't hit by a car at any point. He didn't create any, you know, bigger issues for himself. For now, Fred will be hanging out here until they find the 400-pound pig a proper place to live. I just hope he gets to a place where it's a good home for him and he gets to stretch his legs. Reporting in Aurora, I'm Christian Lopez, Denver 7. Aw. Well, um, bacon, first of all. Second, Mm. it's believed that somebody abandoned Fred. Set him free. Fred's posted on the Aurora Animal Shelter website under lost and found animals. Now, I did look, and um, I don't see if it's the right one. I don't see Fred there anymore, so he either was breakfast or someone picked him up. (laughs) <laughs> I really hope somebody picked him up. It's a giant pig, though. Like he is chunky. Really? That is don't, old, don't it, body shame like, the pig. I'm not body shaming. He's 400 pounds. That's a massive pig. That's chunky. You know. Yeah. That's yeah. a big. There's pig. no avoiding. Looks, There's no nice way to say that one. Yeah. No. Uh, no, no, no judgment. You know. You yeah. do you, man. But it's a, you do it's you. a chunky pig. All right, um, 877-399-9898. A couple of text messages did arrive regarding uh, the earlier story. What happens, oh, drone, what happens when a bird hits a drone carrying hospital biohazard specimens? Mm. That's what we thought, right? Great. Like that's driving along, 401, splat. I mean, some people would say that happens regularly. <laughs> it's just not from a drone. Uh, depending on where you are. Uh, Remote communities, like way north stuff. That'd be cool. Get tests done local nursing stations. That's a good idea. Like if you're mega remote up in the north, your drone flies in, gets your specimen, brings it back. That's kind of a cool idea. That's great. Although this is a very good point. Remember the days when hospitals used to have their own labs and overnight results were common before privatization for profit companies 
Well, that's a very good point. Although I don't blame the private companies for that one. I blame the organizations, the government organizations for moving off that. Um, but two or three days to get test results when someone's life is on the line seems wildly old of an idea in today's world, doesn't it? Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.